Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name, as always, is Ryan. Um, We're in this series called Charismata, where we're exploring the gifts that we receive through the Holy Spirit that uniquely equip each one of us uh, to love the world back into relationship with God. And and I already love, like, at this point in the... the, in the series, hearing from you guys some of the stories of the little light bulbs that are turning on, and especially for some of you who are recognizing there's in the combination of gifts that you have, that unique combination of maybe those three or four top gifts, you're beginning to ascertain a little bit more of what your calling is and to which kinds of people and how it is that you love people. And I want to encourage you to do that, that all of you are really taking the time and making the connections um, in prayer between the different kinds of gifts that you have, that you might have one particular dominant gift, but some of those sub-gifts maybe are going to slightly shift the angle. And I think that's the beauty is, you know, even though we're looking at, you know, 20-odd gifts here, um, the, the variety within our community, within uh, the national and the global church is uh, just a, a, a complete spectrum. It's absolutely wonderful to see so much variety in the way that God crafts each one of us uh, to come alongside of him in his rescue project for the world. So today, we're teaching about a gift that I absolutely adore. Uh, it's called X. Hortation. Uh, so I'm going to pray and we'll get into this. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time and this space. Lord, I, I thank you for these revelations that are dr- uh, kind of coming up in people as uh, you're giving us language to see how we are uh, wired, how we are crafted um, to administer your love, your kingdom in some really unique ways, Lord. And we ask for more of that. I pray that you'd be speaking to us um, from, from day to day and from week to week uh, through other people, through dreams, through just sitting down and doing the work um, to really gain that language and an understanding of, of what you called each of us to do um, and that you, you would actually give us some divine strategies on how to cultivate these gifts, how to move in them in increasing health, look for opportunities to practice them wherever we go and be willing to be surprised and delighted uh, by how you work through us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today, we're looking at exhortation. The gift of exhortation helps us all to grow in health through encouragement and empowerment. We don't often use that word exhortation um, or to exhort people, but it kind of circles around that that space in between encouraging and empowering. The the Greek word that we get here that we find in scripture is parakaleo, which literally means uh, to call to one side. And so the people that are gifted with exhortation they're kind of the coaches of the church. They come up, they rally alongside of us and they encourage us so that we can continue to grow, to improve, uh, to become healthier, to step deeper into what God's calling us to. And I really love that word encouragement because when we break that down, what we're thinking it means is to literally, it means to put courage into people. 
the tenacity to believe that by God's help, we can do the things that we're called to do. Um, Another word that we use for this is grace, that grace is the hand of God placed upon us to empower us to do the things that we cannot do by our own strength. And so these exhorters, um, these parakaleos come alongside of us and they coach us in helping us to move forward in understanding and cultivating our gifts, in understanding our vocation and being about our father's business. Um, so a couple kind of little personality observations that I've made of people that have the gift of exhortation. Um, number one, the exhorters tend to be focused on the holistic health of a person. So when they're, when they're in that kind of coaching mode, they're thinking about your mental health, your emotional health, your spiritual health, and your physical health. They want every part of you to rise up, to be rescued and redeemed, um, to, uh, to kind of further lay claim to the kingdom into which we've been saved. And I really love that because I think exhortation is a, a unique angle that we have when we talk about salvation. We've been talking about that actually a lot this year, that salvation is not just you know, uh, this, this get out of jail free card when we die, but salvation is something that is happening right now. And the way that Paul is phrasing it in scripture is always, we have been saved, um, we are in the process of being saved now, and someday we shall be saved. And that word for salvation, sozo, it carries within it uh, the, uh, the place of rescue and of, of healing, that it's a word of health. And I think exhorters really understand this, that the work of salvation in our lives today touches every aspect of what it means to be a human being. That when God rescues us and he's redeeming us, he doesn't just care about our souls. He's not just interested in us being in heaven when we die, but he also really cares about our mental health. He cares about our emotional capacity. He cares, of course, for our spiritual journey, and he cares for our physical health, that God wants every part of us, all the bits and pieces that have been broken and shattered by the world, collected back together and brought into health. And so um, people with the gift of exhortation so beautifully typify that because they'll tend to have a broad cause for the people that they're coaching. Um, exhorters can also be very interested in systems. So it's not just the health of people, but they'll look at an organization and say, how does this whole thing raise up more and more into the purpose to which we've been called? So you think about like as a church, for example, um, I could pretty confidently say that every day our church feel, uh, fails in fulfilling our mission. But that's why we have mission, that's why we have vision, because it's, it gives us that North Star that we're working towards, that we're not content with just being the church as we are today. You know, I often find that when I'm, you know, counseling people who have been hurt by church, um, which is a huge part of my job, and many of you know that, like with your friends and your family, we're kind of in this huge shift um, within our culture where people are really calling into question their spiritual upbringing, their spiritual heritage. And there's a lot of pain to sort through there. Um, and, and one of the things that I continually hear is, well, I was hurt by this church or this, you know, I wasn't uh, loved in the way that I should be loved or cared for. And, and I find myself kind of in between that we have this vision for who we're called to be as a church, but we also have to accept the reality that we daily fail at those things, that we don't love people um, as we should. Um, And so a church 
should not be held to a standard of perfection, but should be expected to constantly be growing so that more and more, day by day, we're being formed to look more like Jesus, um, to live in his kingdom with him as king, and that day by day we're fulfilling that vision that we've been given a little bit more than we were the day before. And I think this is what's so key for us to have people with the gift of exhortation among us is that they, they don't allow us to kind of rest on our laurels that somehow we've arrived as individuals or as a community but actually there is more to go. There's more to grow. Um, so because of this, you know, we've been looking at orientation to time with a lot of the gifts. Um, people with the gift of exhortation tend to be very future oriented, that they've kind of laid claim to that vision of, of what we look like when God has finished what he started in our lives through the spirit of Jesus. Um, and they call back that vision into the present moment kind of as that coach. But because of that, people with the gift of exhortation tend to be very idealistic, that they're so caught up with the way things could be and should be that they actually get really frustrated with the way they are today. And because of that, sometimes people with the gift of exhortation, ironically, may seem to be lacking in compassion for how people are right now uh, because they'll get so fixated on what's lacking, that we don't have enough, we don't have enough health, or we haven't achieved this goal. Um, and so they can tend to lack compassion to the people they're working with right now. And so any of you that have a gift of exhortation, I want you to be really aware of that. Are you more frustrated by what isn't there and what is lacking than you are being content uh, to see what God is doing and blessing right now in this moment. And so exhorters really need to hold that balance well between present reality and future vision and kind of stand in the gap for all of us. And so I think when we're talking about the gift of exhortation, there's another really important kind of theological, philosophical underpinning that I, uh, of course, I delight in exposing you to these things because it's really important that we see the lens through which we see things and the assumptions that we make. Um, and I think that this, this is a kind of an aspect of the way that God has crafted the world that really becomes the place where people with the gift of exhortation are the experts. Um, and this is, I think, what exhortation does. Exhortation uncovers the potential hidden within us all. Now, some of you probably cringe when you hear that word potential. Uh, probably because it's been weaponized, right? Like you've, you've been in a relationship or you've had a coach or a teacher and, and it feels really patronizing when they're like, oh yeah, he, he's really got some potential. She really, she has potential. And the assumption that's under that, and this is kind of a foundation of Western philosophy, is that we think of time as being linear, that we move from A to B to C to D, and then we're at our destination. So when we think of potential, we're thinking of what we could be or what this person could be or that organization could be eventually. If we really worked hard and if we crossed all of our T's and dotted all of our lowercase J's, then maybe someday we could realize our potential. But potential is kind of cast off into the future. Right now, you're not good enough, you're not valuable enough, uh, you're not treasured enough, your inherent uh, beauty is not present. It's like we, maybe eventually you'll become the thing that you're supposed to be. And this is how we think in the West. But there's a really fascinating worldview reorientation when we learn about how the Hebrew people 
saw and continued to see the world because they don't think in terms of linear logic. They think in kind of more what's called block logic, and I'll get into that some other day. That's very obscure stuff, but it's fascinating. But I think this is what's so important. For us in the West, in our Greco-Roman heritage, potential is a future reality. Um, in the Hebrew worldview, potential is a present reality that's just hidden, okay? So what that means is everything that is true of God and true of ourselves is present in this very moment right now. That's our inherent, our value, um, our worth, but it's covered over by all of these little things that you know, we kind of put under the umbrella of sin within the Christian household. Our coping mechanisms, our addictions, our fears and anxieties, all of these things cover over our true selves rather than being just straight up the face value reality of our lives that we need to deal with that so that we can be something else later on. And so in the Hebrew tradition, um, there's a word for a, a righteous person. Uh, and it's a zadik, and it's kind of a, almost like a, a, a spiritual level that one arrives at. And a zadik, a righteous person, is someone who has realized the potential within them because they're in such deep communion with God in this moment, that they've kind of allowed what is true to shine forth from who they really are. And they're able to reveal the truth about who they are and who God is through blessing other people. And so Zadiks, uh, or what later becomes the rabbi, the, the spiritual leader, is someone who is realized in their potential as a child of God, but also continues the work of helping realize that in other people. I think that's such a powerful reorientation and one in, that many of you might actually be familiar with. Um, when we're in love, we love the potential of who somebody is. I think in this deeper, truer, more ancient way. It's, it's a tragedy and it's almost a cruelty when we love people for potential in that Western sense. I love you for who you might be someday. But I think when we're truly in love, we see our beloved honestly the way they are today. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't pretend like <clears throat> sin is not there, that coping mechanisms and little you know, idiosyncrasies, we don't pretend like those things don't exist, but we actually integrate fully in our beloved the potential of who they truly are, their truest, freest selves in God, and also all of the false self stuff that's kind of obscuring that vision. And I think to be in love then is actually to participate with God in the work of helping to uncover the potential that's there right now in this moment. When we truly love somebody, we love every part of who we are. And we commit to coming alongside of them and saying, I'm going to put myself um, in the mercies of God to see you fully realized, to see you zadik, to see you made righteous and whole. And that's the covenant that we make in marriage and that's the covenant that we make with God at our baptism is that we are committed to seeing blessing shed off the false self and to live into that new self, the self that has been saved into Christ. And so I think that's a really important reorientation when it comes to this idea of potential. 
that it's actually a really exciting and beautiful concept in the Christian household when we divorce it from its Greco-Roman origins. And so what is it that the gift of exhortation then contributes to God's rescue project for the world, not just for us individually, but worldwide, what's going on? We take this idea of potential and we put it next to exhortation and encouragement. I believe, and I think you do too, that the world is waiting for the goodness of God to be revealed. The world is waiting for the goodness of God to be revealed. Many of you know, one of, I think, the most passionate reorientations that we need to make is here's this world and it's full of human beings and created things and it's all just kind of ambling and there is a God, but he kind of lives up on top of the mountain and he's not particularly bothered, so we have to kind of do the rain dance to get God to pay attention to us so he'll come and rescue us and fix us. And of course, again, that has much more to do with, with Greek religion than it does anything that is actually Christian. That in Christianity, we believe that God is completely present in his creation, but it's waiting for that presence to be revealed which is what we call a sacramental worldview. So when we, you know, when we come to the table and we have the cup and we have the bread, these are symbols, they're sacred. It's a sacred act that's revealing something that's always been true, but we didn't always recognize it. Or as I'm so fond of, of quoting with Jacob having that dream and seeing the ladder going up to heaven and the angels coming up and down and he wakes up and he says, oh, surely God was in this place, but I wasn't aware of it that our journeys are constantly waking up to the reality of God all around us, but then also waking up to the reality of who God has called us to be and who he has declared us in Christ Jesus. And so I want to dip into a story of someone I think beautifully typifies um, the person with a gift of exhortation, and that is sweet brother Barnabas. So I'm going to give just a couple little vignettes of his story through the book of Acts that uh, really kind of show um, the quality of person he was and what it is that exhorters do for the rest of us and what they do for God's ultimate rescue project. So um, the first time that we meet Barnabas is right at the very end of Acts chapter four. This is kind of, Luke's been laying out these pictures of that very early church right after Pentecost. And he kind of introduces us to Barnabas there. It says, Joseph, a Levite, from Cyprus, okay, so that means he's a, he's a Jew of a particular family um, within the larger Jewish family uh, from Cyprus, which is a little island in the Mediterranean. Um, so Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And I love this, that He's an early disciple. He's not from around these parts. He's from this other island, but he is Jewish. Somehow he's ended up in Jerusalem. He's engaged with the story that Peter and the apostles are telling. And that story is washed over him and awoken him to say, oh my goodness, Jesus is the Messiah that God had promised us. And now he wants to participate. And they actually give him a new name. You know, this is not uncommon in scripture that your name carries power um, as to something about the truth of who you really are. Again, we don't always do this, but you know, it'd be actually really interesting. Anybody, if you know what your name means, go ahead and add that into the chat. I just, I would be very curious to see um, what your name means and if it resonates with who you really are. So these guys, they, they give him this nickname, which is son of encouragement, which I think is so great because it, it says something about the quality of his person. And I think what we see in this little vignette is Barnabas is an all-in kind of guy. 
You know, many of us, we're kind of, we're very unsure and we're kind of trepidatious and we're cautious when it comes to other people. No, Barnabas, son of encouragement, he's like, you know what? Boom, I'm in. So he sells a farm and he just gives all of his money uh, to the apostles. And he's like, I'm in. This stuff is yours. Let's do this thing called Christianity, which wasn't called Christianity yet, but we find that later in part of Barnabas' story. And I think that's so true. Exhorters, when you are in, oh my gosh, you are all in. You just give yourself over to it and it's your biggest blessing and it can also be your biggest liability if you're not careful in how you do that. And that's that kind of idealistic mindset coming through. So we meet up with Barnabas again in Acts chapter nine. This is right after um, Paul's conversion when he was still called Saul. He has this dramatic encounter with the spirit of Jesus that knocks him off his horse and, and he's blind and then he finds solace in this guy Ananias who's of course terrified of him. And this is the moment in the story when Saul comes to the leaders in Jerusalem um, and they were terrified of him. Like they knew this guy. He had been literally um, traipsing around the Middle East murdering Christians, followers of the way, because he read his Bible and his Bible told him so. That's what he thought God wanted. He was a very righteous, zealous kind of guy. So this would be, imagine, I wish I was more up to date on who's actually like leading Al-Qaeda, but think about several years ago. Imagine if Osama bin Laden walked through the door of our church and just said, hey everybody, uh, nice to meet you. I'm Osama bin Laden. I had a change of heart. I met Jesus and I feel like I'm called to the ministry. Like, how would you react? You'd be terrified. And you'd also probably be really wary because let's be honest, many of us think that there are some human beings that are just irredeemably and they're just pure evil. So imagine that this is the moment this guy walks through the door, a known terrorist to followers of the way, claiming that he's had this radical encounter with Jesus and that he's being appointed to be another apostle. And that's where we see the gift of exhortation coming. This is Acts chapter nine, verses 26 to 31. So when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Maybe they just thought this was another tactic he had to, to kind of smoke them out. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his, uh, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. Those are Jews that are raised in kind of a Greek world, um, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Barnabas was the only person who saw Paul's, at the time, Saul's potential. And again, I don't think Barnabas said, oh yeah, someday this guy could really be something. If we worked hard on him and we gave him a really great regime for, for working out and studying, like maybe eventually he'll become a disciple or an apostle or whatever. No, he, he saw the, the mark of someone who had met Jesus and had been radically transformed from the inside out. And so when everybody else is afraid and kind of, wary and cautious. It's Barnabas that comes along and says, no, I believe his story. I believe that we need to give him a chance. And that's the gift of encouragement and exhortation 
that if it wasn't for Barnabas, maybe they would have never accepted Saul's testimony and we would have missed out on his ministry. So there's, the next story is a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 11. Barnabas actually begins to take Saul about with him. And so in the next couple chapters, whenever you encounter them, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is kind of leading the way. He's kind of discipling Saul in a way as they're on their missionary journeys together. So this is Acts chapter 11, verse 20 to 26. And so what has just happened is that after the persecution of Stephen, which you remember was actually at the hands of Saul. Saul was there present when Stephen was stoned and became the first martyr. Um, all the disciples began to scatter throughout the known world, but they made it a priority that they were going and ministering to the Jews that were kind of all over the Roman Empire at the time. Um, I think about you know Tertullian, one of the early church fathers said, it was the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church. And that's what we see right here is because of what happened with Stephen, um, the, the faithful were kind of spread out, but not in a way that they're running away out of fear, but there was a new urgency to preaching the good news. So, like I said, uh, most of them were going to Jews um, all over the Roman Empire. Some of them, however, this is verse 20, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, so remember um, Barnabas is from Cyprus, uh, went to Antioch, which is in uh, Turkey, and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So we're starting to see that shift that it's going from being an exclusively Jewish uh, sect or way of life, and they're beginning to incorporate in Gentiles as well. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought back to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught, the, taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The word Christian, of course, meaning little Christs. Before this, they were known as the way. So the way was just this kind of weird Jewish sect, but now they're starting to incorporate in these Gentiles. So that, that name seems limited. And so they start saying these Christians, these little Christs that go around pretending like they are uh, little reflections of Jesus, which of course they truly were. But I love this story that some of these, some of these early apostles, uh, disciples are going out on mission and they begin to preach the good news to the Gentiles and it's Barnabas that comes along and just goes, yes, absolutely. That's the thing. That's what we need to do. Keep going. And he continues to paint for them that North Star. Okay, yes, let's keep going. Let's keep working this out day by day. But we've got to remember, we've got to remain true to the Lord. We've, so that's faithfulness. We've got to stay faithful to him and whatever he's saying and doing. Um, and... Uh, what was the, the other thing that he says? Um, he encourages them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Um, so the, the exhortation, a healthy exhorter, encourages us where we are today to remain faithful to wherever God might lead us. And again, we see that so beautifully in the story of Barnabas. 
So, um, as I said, Barnabas starts to take Saul around with him on his mission trips. Um, eventually, Saul's name becomes Paul. Um, and then around Acts 13, we see the switch. And then Paul starts to take over. And Barnabas becomes uh, kind of second in command or comes alongside and encourages Paul. I think probably because he recognized that Paul had um, the bigger, mightier calling on him. And I love that because I think sometimes we feel this pressure that we're all meant to be Paul. We're, we're meant to be the guy, the gal who's responsible for the whole thing. And that's not true. Some of us are going to be the person that comes alongside of the person in our lives in different mo- moments. And that is invaluable because if it were not for Barnabas and all these other people that we don't even know their names necessarily, who cared for Paul, who ministered to him, who encouraged him, we might never have had um, the legacy that we have because of Paul. Perhaps Christianity maybe never would have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for those people who came around uh, Paul. So it's because of encouragers like Barnabas that we have the ministry of Paul. Who's responsible for where you are today? So what I want to do, I just want to take 30 seconds, just close your eyes, and I want you to think about, in in gratitude, who are the people that are responsible for you being where you are today? Let's just take that 30 seconds and just remember those people. I've been um, delving back into the work of Dr. Cornell West a lot recently, who is a phenomenal man. He's a philosopher. He speaks a lot about, the, uh, about race in America, um, an incredible speaker. You have to sit and just like write down all these references. He's making references at one point to like ancient Greek philosophers, and then he's talking about jazz artists from the 60s, and, and he just, he ties this all together. He's so wonderful. He's so exciting. But one of the things that I've noticed so often um, is that Dr. West, when he's beginning a lecture, he always starts by saying, I am who I am because somebody loved me. And he goes on to talk a little bit about his mom. He goes on to talk about his dad. He talks about the church that he grew up in, Shiloh Baptist Church. And I love that, that he's so aware that he is where he is today because of the people that loved him into that place. And indeed, I think this is something that the black church tradition maybe does a little bit better than many uh, within the white church tradition. That in the white church, we've often believed that we're self-made people, that we're responsible for our choices, we're responsible for where we are today. So when it comes to understanding legacy, um, we, we don't have a really strong theology for that. But in a lot of black church tradition, they recognize that we are where we are today because the church has held us, has, has cultivated us, encouraged us to grow. The family has helped us, encouraged us to grow. So we are the product of our environment. And I think there's a lot there for us uh, to learn, especially when it comes to how we're holding this church. So when you think about City Beautiful Church, are you aware of how the people here are shaping who you are? That you're being loved 
in such a way, hopefully anyway, you're being loved in such a way that you're able to realize the potential that lays within you because of Jesus. And so how do we make this practical? What's, I think one of the most practical ways that we can practice exhortation, but especially some of you that have the gift of exhortation, is to recognize the power that our words have, that it's one of the key ways in which we're able to offer encouragement. And I've been thinking about this bit a lot, and, um, and, and it was very convicting to me in my own life as, as someone who maybe would say that they don't value uh, words of affirmation very much. But if I'm honest with the people that I love and have loved, um, I haven't been more diligent uh, and free in using my words uh, to, to love people into their fullest selves. And this is what I realized in this. We need to be less stingy with our encouragement. Our words are a renewable resource that can call out blessing in others. You know, we live in this kind of impoverished mindset that we're very miserly and we've only got so much resources and we've only got so much uh, energy or whatever and we're constantly like protecting all of that and then we just let it squeak out but not too much that we'd actually be at risk. Um, and that impoverished mindset doesn't work in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God, its economy is one of abundance and I think we especially see that with our words. It doesn't cost us anything to encourage people by using our words, but so often we believe that it does. Um, when I first came into the ministry, it was just over 10 years ago now, which is insane, and probably explains why I have this big gray streak in my mustache and my beard. Um, I was working, for, I, I started a ministry school, I was doing some spiritual direction, and um, one of the pastors that I worked with, I only ever heard critique from him about things that I should be doing better. And, and I've always been very sensitive to that in my life um, when I only get critique. And, and it came to a point where we actually had to sit down and have a mediation for conflict uh, with another one of the pastors that was on staff there. And I said, I, I just have no idea what you think about me and the job that I'm doing because all I hear from you is the things that I need to be doing better or the things that I should be doing. Um, I just need to know that you approve of, of me and the work that I'm doing. And it was interesting because he said, he said, Ryan, of course, I, I appreciate the work you're doing and I, and I believe in your ministry and what you're doing. I just, I'm afraid that if I keep affirming you, you're going to look to me for validation. And that was so powerful for me to hear him say that because I recognized like, yes, I probably do that too. That out of fear that people are gonna start looking to me to affirm them instead of God, I'm actually stingy with my words. I hold back this renewable resource because I don't want them to find that in me. But then they go about not knowing how I actually feel or what I actually see in them. And then conversely, when it comes along to offering genuine critique or constructive criticism, it's not received because it doesn't have that foundation of, of belief, of faith in this other person. And uh, that's something that I've continually tried to grow in is being less stingy with my words because I don't want that to be what I experienced. I don't want people that I love uh, to experience that. Um, and of course, I'm continually trying to get better at that. Um, but one of the other things that I recognized is, is thinking, why, why am I not a words of affirmation guy? And I realized it's because I have a hard time receiving blessing. 
I have a hard time receiving words of other people when they're blessing me. Um, and that is also comes out of an impoverished mindset. That's the, that's the impoverished scarcity economy of the world, that there's not enough to go around and, and conversely don't trust what people are, are offering you because it might cost you something as well. And I think what I've realized in my own life is that I've kind of covered over my heart as a way to protect my own resources, but in doing so, I have numbed myself to being able to receive goodness from other people, to receive blessing from them. And if I really want to live an abundant life, I need to learn how to receive blessing, how to receive words of affirmation. And, it, and it's not, I, I, I do not think it's valuable to butter people up so that we can tell them what we really think. I'm not saying this is like, give me an affirmation sandwich, like tell me a positive, give me a negative, tell me another positive, like that. There's, a, there's an agenda behind that, you know, where we're just saying nice things to people so then we can say what we really think. But it really has, and that's kind of the counterfeit version of exhortation. The real thing is to go, no, 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 the truest thing I believe about you is your potential right now of your true self and who, what God says about you, and I want to speak into that. True exhortation does not paper over the cracks in our lives. True exhortation does not offer us these kind of cheap fortune cookie, uh, positive thinking messages that avoid the reality of life as it is today just to make us feel better. Exhortation is not about making us feel one way or the other. It's about seeing us grow in health. True exhortation boldly declares what is truest about God, what is truest about ourselves, and what is truest about the world, and fights for that thing, that vision, to be revealed, um, because that might not be what is seen in the moment. So, what I want us to do is I actually want us to practice um, some exhortation. Um, for those of you that have the gift, I, it's an exhortation, or it's an it's a opportunity to grow in health. And for some of you, maybe you don't know if you have the gift or not, it's a wonderful opportunity for you to do something that is perhaps quite unfamiliar. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you f five minutes. And I want you to ask the Lord to give you five names of people in your life that you see the deepest truth about them but maybe you haven't blessed them with your words. And I'm gonna give you the five minutes to think about those five people, allow those spirits to re reveal it to you, and then I want you to text those five people in the next five minutes. And what we're doing is we're just laying out a blanket of exhortation to see the goodness of God revealed through people and through his creation. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna give you five minutes, five people, and then we're gonna transition into worship. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the people in our community and in my life that have this gift of exhortation. Lord, we need it. We need people to come alongside of us, to see, to have vision uh, for who we will become when you finish this rescue project for the whole world and to call out now the goodness that they see in us waiting to be revealed. God, I pray that you would um, imbue City Beautiful Church with such a thick atmosphere of encouragement and exhortation that it comes as natural to us as, as breathing, that we would no longer be stingy and fearful when it comes to that 
scarcity mentality, um, but that we would be generous with our words and our actions as a very, very specific way to love people deeper into your presence and loving them deeper into an understanding of who they truly are because of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now, would you alight upon each of your dear ones um, that that are hearing this message? And would you speak to each one of us five names of people in our lives that you want us to bless through our words. Give us the right words to say that, so that we're not just buttering people up, um, that we're not just uh, playing pretend, but we're really going right for the core of what it is that we see in them. So speak, Lord, for we're listening. Thank you, Father. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So let's take five minutes, practice some exhortation, and then we'll transition to worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.